Welcome back to Dash.Insider, where we help you become a better investor. And on today's episode of Frontline, I am joined by Sean Simpson, Senior Analyst at Dash.Insider. And we really dig into what is happening in the Australian property market right now. We talk about how days on market are decreasing in many, many areas across Australia. In fact, even to before COVID levels or at the same time as during the COVID boom, which is really exciting because days on market is a key indicator of demand and growth. We also talked about a push to affordability, not just from an intrastate, but also an, in, an intra-LGA, but also an inter-LGA migration level, which is people moving inside their LGAs, not just people moving from less expensive areas, which is really interesting and really exciting. We talked about how yields and median rents are changing within those locations as well, and how you can actually think about where rents are going versus where they are today, and also how to think a little more contrarian to become a better and more successful investor in 2023. So if that sounds like the kind of stuff you're into, this is going to be the episode for you. I actually really love this episode. It is full of punchy, insightful nuggets, really top-notch. Uh, when we finished recording it, both Sean and I both said, man, that was a really awesome episode. I'm confident that you're going to think the same as well. So before we get stuck into it, make sure that you subscribe if you're on YouTube and make sure that you rate if you're on Apple Podcasts or anything like that and make sure you share this with a friend, family member or loved one. Without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it and I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to Dash.Insider. On today, we are doing Frontline with Sean Simpson. Sean, how are you? Very good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thanks. So last time we uh, last time we caught up and last time you were on the show, the episode came out at the start of the year. We actually recorded it towards the end of 2022. A lot has been happening in 2023. Obviously, you're in a position at Dashdot as the senior analyst. You've got a whole team of property analysts that work with you and they're just scouring the market every single day looking for the best opportunities, filtering stuff out. And so from a very tangible and practical perspective, it's, it's kind of actually hard to get better insights than what you're going to have as well. You know, we were just talking offline before we joined the uh, before we hit record, and the, your team are roughly at the moment getting a th- doing due diligence and approving, not even just doing due diligence on approving roughly a run rate of about a thousand properties a year. So there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of meat going through there as well. So it's really interesting to get your insights, and you've obviously taken on a lot of the um, the data analysis and suburb selection components of Dashdot as well. So I'm super excited to get into this episode and to talk about. What's actually happening out there? Like, what can you see that other people can't see? Either be it from the analysis of data, or be it from the exposure to volume, or be it from the exposure to clients. I'd love to dig into that. But first, why don't you kind of give us some some optics on, you know, how are things shaping up from your point of view in 2023? What's changed? What's new? Yeah, there's quite quite a bit happening. Even sort of to that first part, that it works out about 30 to 40 properties a day that actually hit the due diligence level. Obviously, there's a, a far fewer amount that gets approved. Um, and it starts at about, yeah, about 1,000-ish a week through the, the shortlisting and then down about 30 or 40 that the analysts look at every single day. So it's really good to get it and being all over Australia as well. So you get a good exposure to all kinds of different places, which is quite interesting. Um, but we are seeing some some really sort of some stranger things happening compared to, to COVID. Obviously, during COVID, there was a large sort of macroeconomic push, which unified a lot of markets acting in the same way. And the further we get out of that, the further spread out different LGAs act and then even the different suburbs within the LGAs start to act. So yeah, we're seeing sort of some pretty interesting things where although, you know, media has the, the normal narrative that things are going going south, we're seeing days on market in a lot of places not only dropping, but the rate of acceleration they're dropping increasing. So um, yeah, decreasing by increasing rates, if, if that makes sense. And then even within certain LGAs, some of the more affordable suburbs 
performing very differently to the more expensive suburbs, which I'm sure we'll get into. Let's dig into that. It's probably a great place to start because obviously the um, the the narrative and anyone who's listened to Dashlot Insider or the Investor Lab before this uh, knows that we're, we're we're pretty big advocates of looking at the data, not not at the headlines, you know. But what's really interesting, obviously, is that there is a there is a media narrative that the property market is has been crashing or that growth has gone and you know all of that kind of stuff, and that maybe growth's going to come back, but in fact. What we can see in what we're doing, or what you can see, is that in fact growth didn't go anywhere. Right, growth is still there in the place in the right places, and in fact, it sounds like the fact that days on market are, uh, are tightening up. You're saying that days on market are starting to reduce the kind of COVID levels. Is that is that kind of right? Yeah. So even further down, it was interesting when we started talking about this. I jumped on the data and started looking all kinds of LGAs all across Australia. And it was funny, I was expecting, just from what you've been bombarded from the media, I was expecting a decline down to sort of when interest rates started. And then maybe I was thinking, maybe about once the data gets in, maybe a like November, December bump, and it just to come up a little bit, like not outrageous, but to pop up a little bit. I've actually found I've, I've heaps and heaps of LGAs, and we're not just talking singular, like one in WA, all over Australia, I found the trend line on days on market decreasing was virtually on some of them perfectly linear still going down all the way through from about say january last year right through to the data that we've just received and even in some of them you've seen a, a, an increase in the rate that they are decreasing so sort of decreasing by even further than COVID, which i thought was quite interesting like even some of them of you know all over the places sort of sub 10 10 days on market depending on contract processes but still very very quick that's super interesting. Okay, so for, for people who don't know why that's important, what does that indicate? What what is what is this days on market metric that you're talking about? Why is it important? And when you see that happening, because what you're talking about is that the days on market are reducing, and in fact, the speed at which they are reducing is actually increasing. So they're getting shorter and shorter exponentially, so to speak. So kind of what is that? Why is it important? What is that? What story does that tell you when you start saying that? Yeah, so it's really important to look at, and I think a lot of people can get caught on metrics across the board on just the number. But I think not only the number, it's the direction the number is changing at the rate at which it is changing is very important that you go one or two levels deeper, which is sort of what we we're talking about there, um, because they can tell completely different stories and they can pan out very differently over a one, three, five, ten year period based on how many levels you've, you've um, looked at. But yeah, essentially what that means is if days on markets are continually decreasing in these areas, it means that market heat is is definitely not coming off the boil it's increasing and potentially increasing at a faster rate so that that's normally a great sign for us because essentially a lot of these places we've been buying in for quite a while and when we sort of start to see that as one metric across a wide array of metrics really chew down quickly you know that the sort of flocking effect has started to happen and people are diving into the area a lot of other investors which then starts to stimulate a lot of growth for our clients that are already exposed and already have assets in the area which is a good thing yeah. And for those, for the uninitiated who are listening to this, what we're talking about with days on market specifically is the number of days on average it takes for a property to go from listed to sold. That's basically it, right? So if if a property gets listed for sale and it takes three months for it to actually sell or to, or to come, go off market, that'd be 30 or sorry, 90 days on market. Now, if on average, in a, in a suburb, all properties take three months to sell, then the days on market in that suburb on average would be 90 days. And so what we can see when it's reducing is that means there's heightened buyer activity. So it can mean a couple of things. It can mean there's constrained supply um, and it can be the same amount of de- demand with less supply, or it can be 
uh, more supply with more demand, or can it be any kind of side of that equation where the demand is outstripping the supply and that is pushing and that is squeezing those da- those days down because there's, as soon as properties are coming on the market, they're selling much faster. That's a real sign of momentum building up in the market. And to your point, Sean, the velocity rate of change is far more important than the static number. You know, even regardless of what you're looking at, regardless of what you're even if it's vacancy rates, if somebody said a suburb had a vacancy rate of one, you could arbitrarily say like 1%, for example, you could arbitrarily say 1% vacancy rate, that's pretty good. However, if it had gone from, I don't know, 0.01, yeah, yeah, if it had gone from 0.01 to one in six months or something like that, you might be like, well, that's a pretty accelerated upward trend. Maybe we want to keep an eye on that. Vice versa, if it had gone from 3% down to 1% in six months, you'd be like, wow, this is really interesting and looks really exciting. And so understanding the dynamics of the data is just as important as understanding the static information. So that's super interesting. And you say that you're seeing that across the board. You're seeing you're seeing that trend across the board. Is there any commonalities between the locations that you're seeing that kind of play out? Yeah, so pretty well across the board, even on an LGA basis. Um, but then interestingly enough, it can be further exaggerated um, in the more affordable suburbs within the LGAs of which that is happening. So a lot of these LGAs being affordable LGAs to start with. Um, but sort of what I'm talking about there is say you have a large city. I was looking at the days on market in, in one city in far north Queensland that where in a traditionally little bit more upmarket, I wouldn't call it an expensive suburb by anyone's metrics, but a little bit more upmarket suburb, I did see that little bounce coming off interest rate rises, which you can put down to a lot of things. You could put it down to people's access to credit to buy those more expensive homes, a lot of different metrics. Um, but even within that LGA that was seeing the decrease in days on market, that expensive suburb had a little pop up, whereas the the more affordable suburb, which is traditionally a little bit of a, you know, what people would say, oh, it's a dodgy suburb or a bit sketchy or stuff like that. That was the one where I saw the not only the decrease, but the rate at which it was decreasing very dramatic. So obviously things getting hotter in those more affordable suburbs in comparison to those little bit more expensive suburbs. And when, so when you say a bounce with interest rates, what do you mean by that? Do you mean like, you're, yeah, yeah, to try and break that down a little bit more because um, you've got you've got a little bit of the curse of knowledge because you're looking at this stuff and you're really excited about it. So, so and you can visualize what that looks like. So try and explain to someone who's watching this on YouTube or listening to this on Spotify, who, what, what do you mean by you kind of expected to see a bounce with interest rates or just try and explain that a little bit to give people some yeah. context. So what I was talking about in that, so with a specific example in that suburb, say it's a, a bit more expensive suburb, as interest rates go up, naturally people's access to credit is restricted. Just the physical amount of money that you can borrow is pulled back as interest rates go up. And there's nothing you can really do about it minus increase your income. Um, so what I was what I was expecting was that as those interest rates continually increased and everyone's budget naturally goes down, that I was expecting those little bit more expensive suburbs, which you know traditionally not everyone could afford, to have a little bit of a, a bounce up in days on market in line with the interest rates, um, just due to the drop in demand naturally through people not being able to afford the suburb. Yeah, nice. And you basically you haven't seen that happen. Or you saw it happen a little bit and then it just kind of back off again? Or just no, to very, that. very minimally. But I'm saying I did see a small amount in the really higher end suburbs within an LGA. So not not across the board in an LGA. Um, but if you picked out singular suburbs where you think that's like the swanky part of town sort of thing and it's really, really upmarket, it was by no means a shoot up in days on market you'd be concerned with. But you did see the little bit of the trend up in comparison to the trend down at a fastening rate in the in the cheaper suburbs. 
It's super interesting, right? Because you're generally speaking, talking about more affordable areas. You're not talking about Vaucluse in Sydney. You're talking about if you were to categorize the regions, you would put them in the more affordable end. Yet even within those regions, you're saying that when you look at those regions, the up, the high end of those regions is more affected than the lower end of those regions. So you're sort of seeing, because we can kind of obviously understand that, you know, rising interest rates, lower affordability means more expensive properties are less attainable, et cetera. And so that tends to be the section of the market, which is which is in fact why Sydney is struggling at the moment and has been struggling over the last little while. But Sydney is not the rest of the country and what's happening in Sydney is not happening everywhere, which is the point of this. But it's really interesting that you can still see that on a like fractal level, you know, self-similar patterns at different scales happening at that level too. That's super interesting. Because yeah. affordability, I think as well is, um, it's interesting. It is a little bit kind of relevant affordability is different for different people in different areas and it, it's all good and well to say the australian property market is one big big bucket of water and if one bit gets expensive it'll all balance out the other bit but naturally people have tendencies to sometimes stay in the same location and other people are happy to move around and go all over the place so in these cities especially if they're they're a long way away from anything else they might have inter lga migration to these areas in which case somebody might move out of Vaucluse. they're coming to a suburb where it's 800 grand medium and they're like you pay this thing's cheap as but a lot of the market drivers in some of these places are actually um inter lga migration so people from within the lga staying within the lga because obviously that's a lot less of a move if they have work and so on and so forth and that's what we're seeing with the squeezed affordability within the same lga so some of those drivers you can't necessarily just presume are from external to the LGA, they're often quite quite inclusive. And in that case, um, affordability is kind of relevant to the person. Like these suburbs I was talking about are still sub-million dollar medium price. They might be 700 or or 800 grand. But if you're in a, a LGA where you can buy a, a kilometre or two away for 300 grand, then relevant to those people that are buying that that LGA, that is expensive. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of layers to sort of consider, I guess. That's with that, super, inter- that that's super interesting because when people think about like, you know, things like the exodus to affordable lifestyle or, you know, like a push to affordability, people do think naturally, they think, okay, so someone's currently living in, again, we'll just use this as an example. Someone's living in a million dollar suburb uh, in Sydney. And instead of living there, they're going to move to some regional town because it's 400 grand median price. So the, the presupposition is that these individuals are moving large distances, completely changing their lifestyle and their geography. You know, they might be moving from New South Wales to Queensland or, or something along those lines. Where in actual fact, that's not nece- that may be happening, but it's actually not necessarily happening because the move to affordability can happen within the same scope and the same region, which is really interesting as well and shows and really kind of plays out some, how we can think about some of the dynamics in those areas too. Yeah, it's a part driver. It's definitely a part driver, that, that move from, from elsewhere, but you can't keep it as a holistic view, I don't think, because a lot of times, yeah, you could think of that as a whole view where it's the whole of Australia and, you know, everyone buying in the middle of regional South Australia thinks that that's affordable. But then for, for Jobo that lives in that town that's moving from one side that's 150 grand medium price to 250 over the other side, it's a completely different story for them. So you have to sort of take into consider- consideration both external sort of into lga migration as well as the the internal i think and that that effect can differ depending on where you are in the country as well it's sort of i i think it would be a lot more prevalent um thinking of the people moving from other lgas if you're looking at say a wollongong or a newcastle where you're very very central you're not moving a long way away from sydney whereas if you were saying sort of you know having a look at 
um, into LJ migration in Broome, it's a bit more of a move for a large city person from Sydney or somewhere with a lot higher median, pr- median price to shift their whole life up there. So the effects can not only differ between the interverse intra, but also between the different LJs of how, how strong they can be, I think. Yeah, super interesting. And so that also plays out in a in a different way, um, something that we were talking about offline as well, is actually uh, yield potential. And, and actually, more specifically, what I, what I want to get to is the variance in uh, median yields, because we're talking about in a location, in any given location or a region or an LGA or whatever, you, you're already seeing inter- LGA migration, i.e. From, from more expensive suburbs to less expensive suburbs, push to affordability. So you're seeing the dynamics change in those suburbs specifically as well. Talk to me about like what's happening with, with yields, because you've noticed some really interesting stuff happening with you know below median yields, above median yields. Kind of, Can you talk to that, give a little bit of color to that? Yeah. And this is a great one because it's, again, it's about thinking not just on a number, but the change in that number and the rate of change of that number. Because I, I feel a lot of people that are just sort of going out of the limb and, and, and buying an investment property can just be, and a lot of clients quite often that, that are very limited in their knowledge might come to us and just yield is the number, gross yield like we want, 6.5% gross yield or something. But if you really think about it, the not only the, the change in that number, but the rate at which it's changing can paint a very, very different story for that client on the performance of the property, even in the short term. So for example, say you, you were really, really hung up and you only wanted a more than a 6% yield property. You could buy a 6% yield property, but similar to the vacancy um, example we used a minute ago, if that was a place that had gone from, that was stagnant at 6% and we could predict or, or find drivers that the rent was unlikely to grow and the style of asset um, would mean that it was unlikely to grow as well. In comparison to say you bought a property where the yield was currently 5%, we could tell that the style of asset that it was, the rent was below the median, it had a lot of lot of upside potential to grow. If you look back on those properties in say 18 months or so, the 5% might now be a 6.5 and the 6 might now be a 5.8. And it's a very, very different story very quickly um, based on a whole number of things, which yeah, we can dive into, into each of them. But I think style of asset the area in which you're buying, so like the squeeze affordability, because that that squeeze does also happen across rents, not just median sales price. So I know we we're talking a minute ago about you know moving to cheaper suburbs in terms of buying. It also does happen with rents because in high interest rate environments, people, even renters, do still move to affordability in times of uncertainty. So there's a huge number of factors that influence it. But yeah, I just think it's it's really important to think one or two levels deeper, especially with yields. Yeah, totally. And you were telling me about a um, something you'd noticed as well, specifically around assets which were being purchased where the yield was the, above the median and then assets which were being purchased where the yield was below the median. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting as well because, you, you know, p- people, again, kind of people fixating on trying to hit a specific number can actually do themselves a, do themselves a mischief by trying to charge too much or trying to push things too high or, you know, getting overinflated appraisals on, on yields. Do you want to kind of talk about that? Because I thought it was really interesting how, how, how people are getting affected by that. Yeah, I'll give a couple of extreme examples just to paint paint the picture. Um, but say you had half a million dollars to spend and you bought a half a million dollar single family. It was an absolute specky straight off the press. It was really, really nice. And you were getting a, a whatever it is, a 6%. Let's say you're getting $600 a week in rent, wherever it is. Now, conversely, if you were going to spend $500,000 on a duplex that say is getting $600 a week in rent as well, so 300 aside, you can very quickly, uh, there's a huge number of factors that would go into this. You can very quickly see that that $600 a week in your single family is going to be incredibly difficult to get to $700 a week, especially in a time of uncertainty and high interest rates and so on and so forth. 
your renter pool is very small and would more than likely be shrinking as the interest rates go up and, and things get sort of progressively trickier on that front. Whereas you jump back over to your duplex, which is 300 aside, the ability to get that to 350 aside, especially in an environment where people are moving to cheaper rentals, is, is a whole different ballgame. That might be a coat of paint, a new aircon, or you know, getting out somebody that's in an undermarket rent and renting again. So you can start to see how where somebody might have been caught up on just what's the yield of purchase on, on the dot, they can paint very different stories depending on the style of asset that you buy as well as you know a number of other things. So that example there is just the style of asset, but it can also be across the same similar asset within the same LGA. So say you're buying that really nice house in the suburb we were talking about before, it was renting for 600 bucks a week, that's a 6%er. But you want to buy a really cheap house over in the cheaper suburb for 300 grand and that's a 5.5%er. But with what we've been talking about this episode with people sort of flocking to that area, not only in terms of purchasing, but in terms of renting as well, that 6% up the top end, you might have trouble releasing that for that same price at the next time the rent review comes up. Whereas your cheaper property that you've bought at a lower yield at purchase has a greater yield potential. And essentially, once you get rid of that tenant, you may get the extra 50 bucks a week or 100 bucks a week or whatever it is and achieve some really good rent growth. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's really interesting because sometimes people can be shooting to set the rents too high, try and capture the most amount of yield and can end up having to pull back and can end up, you know, they have a vision on buying this property and it's going to be a 6.5% yield because I'm going to go for maximum top end of the appraisal where in, in a practical sense, you know, maybe they should be a little bit more conservative and maybe it's actually going to be a 6 or a 5.8. And if they'd known they're going in, they wouldn't be, uh, have so much of an issue. You know, what's really, you know what's really interesting, Sean, is that I used to spend a lot of time, you know, really f- thinking about the property market, reading the news, thinking about oh, all kinds of stuff. Do you know what's changed since we have developed our predictive models? I kind of don't care. You know, I, I don't know if you've started to, to, to realize this too, because now that you're starting to get into the data and really taking that on as part of your role as well, it's so funny. And I was really thinking about this the other day because somebody was asking me about, oh, what do you think is going to happen with, I don't know, some bloody policy change somewhere or something. And I was kind of like, I don't really, I don't, I don't know and I don't care. And I don't want to sound blase about it. But when you've got tools that can literally say, well, this thing's going to happen here and you can predict rents and property prices, all of the rest of the stuff is just noise, you know? And so how, how, is that, how has that changed your perspective on how oh, you're looking at the property market? Yeah, massively because it's the data, it, the data can't lie. It can't be like the, the uncle that's like tapping on your shoulder like, oh, no, that area, you know, I, I had a terrible experience in that area and it's no good. There's, there is no sort of, I like to call it, bro science, but there's no sort of opinions that can sneak into your decision as to whether or not it's a it's a good investment or not, which is really interesting. I just sort of recently, we had a big, big um, project to get through. So, I reviewed sort of 800-ish suburbs through all our predictive models and all the data that we had. So, I looked at an awful lot of them. And then I caught myself, I've recently moved to a new city. So, I caught myself reviewing suburbs in that city, which I'd been to and driven through. And I was sort of like, oh, you know, I don't know if I'd buy there. And then you look through the data, which has none of that opinion-based stuff in it and it's just like through the roof and you go like, you sort of have to pull yourself up on, on constantly forcing your own, you know, opinions that aren't based on anything at all. They're just sort of what you think on top of how you assess things. So, it has completely changed, yeah, how I how I assess and how I think about real estate, really. Yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? Because what you touched on there is really, really important. Where a lot of investors go wrong is cognitive bias. Now, cognitive bias, they can go wrong in so many ways. They can make up reasons why they think a suburb is a good place to invest and stuff like that. But vice versa, 
they can see a suburb and be like, ooh, I wouldn't live there. I don't like it. This is not for me. And they can then they can superimpose that to mean this is not a good suburb to invest in. <laughs> it's like you're far better off never going to any of the suburbs. Like you're far better off. And now I am not, but just to be clear, I'm not proposing or a proponent that people should be buying in ghettos and doing all that kind of stuff. You don't want to buy. So, but the data can also tell you all that. It can give you a real deep understanding of what is the community like there. What are the you know what are the socioeconomic economic demographics? What are the crime? You can really get all that data. You don't need to go there. And in fact, in my experience, when I've known investors to you know we could find a really amazing location, property, all of that kind of stuff. Nine times out of ten, if they go there, they're going to go. Oh, would I live here? Is this the kind of place that I would want to buy? Is this kind of is this where I would want to live? And then I'll make judgments based on that, and then they can miss out on tons of growth and tons of returns and all of that kind of stuff. You said you've got a couple of examples? Yeah. No, I just got one really funny one. And, and this is by no means ordinary performance. It was an absolute scorcher, but we had a, we had a client that I'm um, fairly certain he was a sort of high-end builder in, in Melbourne. So he builds, you know, beautiful, like stunning sort of things. And um, we bought him a property in, in a regional place in Queensland that was a, an absolute corker, but they were going on a holiday. I think they went up and visited us and, and then they, they gave their um, client account manager a call just going like, oh, this place is horrendous. Like just Im- imposing their own thoughts on it that, you know, there's not a chance I'd live here. You know, the doors just don't quite shut perfectly, which the tenant obviously doesn't worry about at all. And then um, I think it was about two or three days after that, we had a meeting with them and we ordered a bank file and they'd settled like, you know, 30 days ago or something. And then the bank file would come up about, 50, I think it was $55,000 more than they paid or something like that. And they had this huge realization all of a sudden that like, Hold on, like even though the the door handle might not be as shiny as the one I just put in the place in Melbourne, we've just made, you know, fifty five grand by signing a bit of paper and buying this property. And it's sort of you could see that it clicked all of a sudden that maybe the numbers in the data are a little bit more important as to whether or not the door handles operate perfectly or, or whatever other sort of thing things that you want to impose. So yeah, it's a funny realization that for a lot of people. I love that. I love that. Um speaking of changing how people think. This is probably a good opportunity to kind of like talk about how people should be thinking a little different in this in this current market because we've been scouring. I say we, you've been doing it all. I'm not going to take any of the credit for it. You've been looking at all the suburbs. We've been working through different strategies around how to maximize opportunity in a changing environment. Um, people have probably heard me talk about it on podcasts already so far this year. 2023, I think, is a fantastic. I think it's a genuine. Genuinely, this isn't just grandstanding. I genuinely think that 2023 is like one of the best years for property investing that we're going to see in a really long time. Just the difference though, is that people need to change how they're thinking about it, which is awesome because that actually represents the opportunity for the people who can actually change the way they're thinking about it. The opportunity is like psycho awesome, right? It's so good. However, it does require people to think a little bit differently, change their strategy, change their approach, thinking in a kind of like a more dynamic modern portfolio theory type way about their portfolio so what what are your thoughts on that? Because I know a lot of people are chasing yields at the moment, interest rates are going up, but also you talked earlier about a flocking mentality. And so I guess the what what we I guess what we I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what we're seeing, right, is that is that, you know, people are starting to race towards those suburbs which are high yields, which we've already been buying in, which then drives up the growth, which actually then creates a delta in all of these other places where there's huge opportunity for growth, but the crowds have kind of parted a little bit and it's almost like fresh hunting grounds in those places. Do you want to kind of talk to that? What are your thoughts there? 
Yeah, massively. And I'd say that is one other really interesting thing that we've found. And especially as interest rates have got an extra couple of kicks, we have found this just like mass flocking effect where everyone's strategy all of a sudden is high yielding properties to offset obviously the negative cash flow that you can occur when interest rates go up. Um, but that again, that's that's the funny thing where if you, the caveat to finding good opportunities here would be if you can think differently, because if you, you jump in that flock there, we're seeing some of these places where we're starting to to pull back out of now where people are jumping in in the masses and paying crazy money for for things and starting to grow the starting to build the growth for us themselves um, but sort of treading over each other which funnily enough decreases the yields anyway at purchase because the prices are sort of bumping up quite quickly so yeah it is interesting how we found that but it's it's sort of like you said provides some sort of key opportunities to think a little bit differently about where you are in your portfolio and what's required and sort of same as, as touching on the yield potential thing that we were talking about a minute ago is you might not necessarily have to go and chase what you know the highest yield at purchase to achieve this goal if you are at a position where you might need a certain amount of cash flow by a certain amount of time how can you find something that something that may have excellent growth potential but might also be a lower yield with the potential for the yield to be increased quickly which might provide the exact same the exact same end result without jumping in that big mess at the yield of purchase. So there's a lot of different ways to think a little bit deeper about it. But yeah, I definitely think there's a huge amount of opportunity going a little bit contrarian thinking this year and going a little bit against against the crowd. Yeah, nice, nice. How, like, what advice do you, would you give someone then to help them overcome that, that fear, right? Because if someone's like, uh, interest rates have gone up and, you know, l- let's say, Let's say they've got in their mind that they need to go and buy somewhere that's a six and a half percent yield, but perhaps the real opportunity is in a location that's a four and a half percent yield, which anyone who's ever listened to me talk about anything is not something I would normally say. Four and a half percent yield is not usually in a kind of a territory where we would be saying, no, thanks. However, there's significant opportunity there because what we can actually see is the rents are going to rise significantly faster in some of these, some of these, like not all of them. It's not just a, if it's four and a half percent, you would go buy there. That's not a, the investment advice that I'm giving, but, but like, how could you help someone overcome that fear that they might be like, but this seems low when, how, like, how would you give them advice or what kind of like, how would you help reframe their thinking to kind of see what the opportunity looks like? Yeah, it, it's sort of very difficult for me to say because I've got all this wonderful sort of data in front of me, which gives me confidence in, in conveying it. And that's often, I think, half the battle is 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 getting people on side, you know, and being able to explain that to them, which I think is incredibly tricky. Um, but yeah, I, I would say, yeah, it's, it's very hard for me to sort of lean on on um, lean on that when I can see, yeah, all these beautiful graphs telling me exactly how much the rent's going to grow and and all those sort of things. But I think. Yeah, the key thing to think about is if you can, it, de- it depends on the person's individual circumstances, but if you can suffice that small, whatever it is, six months to the rent review or whether the tenant ends in three months or whatever it is, and you can identify an opportunity which is is perfect for you in your certain scenario where you can you can pick up the shortfall of that little bit of cash flow for three to six months maybe, manage to buy at a lower yield with excellent growth potential and you know that it's under market rented and you know that at that six-month mark, we're back on track and we're up to a 5.5 or a 6 or wherever your goal is, you've essentially had your cake and eaten it too. You can quite often think against the against the crowd rather than just chasing that sort of rudimentary, what is the yield when I'm buying this? You can find a lot more gold by thinking, yeah, that one or two layers deeper. One of my favorite kind of quotes, and I'm going to butcher it massively, but it's uh, basically it is the easiest way to make money is to find where demand is going, stand in front of it and open your wallet. 
right? And and if you can do that, and this is, I think, what we're talking about here, it's it's not going where is the action now, uh, you know. And a, another way of saying it, uh, um, which I came up with the other day, is smart surfers start paddling before the wave arrives, right? So if you want to be a smart surfer, if you want to get in front of the demand and open your wallet and make the most of it, you've actually got to look at where the demand is going, not where it is right now. It's all well and good to kind of jump in the deep end and follow the crowd, and but you're just going to be you're going to be in a red ocean. You're going to be everyone's competing for the same type of stuff. And so, if you can act slightly differently, and if you can, the benefit that we have is we've actually built predictive models that actually work, which is crazy in and of itself. So we've got it's a little hard for us because we've got the curse of knowledge because we can see it. But if you can understand where demand is going and then stand in front of it and start paddling before the wave arrives, you're going to surf so much faster. You're going to actually end up catching the waves and making the most of it, which is what a lot of investors miss out on. Because the reason that most investors, say most investors very broadly in this context, that a lot of investors uh, make the mistake of getting in into markets during a period which is known as the winner's curse. When, uh, when a market has already been growing for some time, and so people then use that as validation to say, oh, this is a growing market. However, statistically speaking, most of them jump in at the point where the market should have reached about its natural peak in growth. But then what happens is a lot of people are like, oh my God, look, this has been growing for X amount of years now, whatever the case may be, this is good. And so at the point where the growth should probably start plateauing, it gets an injection of activity, actually goes above and beyond what the actual intrinsic value is of that market, and then goes too high, <laughs> and then comes off and people lose a bunch of money as it starts to reset and recalibrate. And so if you can actually just work out, okay, well, rather than us trying to get in at the top of the market, rather than us, because most investors get in in the second half of any kind of cycle, most investors do get in in the second half. So if you can get in the first half, whether that be a rent cycle, whether you're, if what you're after is rents, okay, well, how can you capitalize on getting into the right markets to get the rental growth? If it's, if it's capital growth, how can you get into the right markets to get capital growth? And depending on what your portfolio needs, whether it's growth, cash flow, or a combination of the two can really dictate what the optimal location is and why and how that best serves your property portfolio. So I think there's a lot, there's a lot in there that I think people can take away from. Awesome. Sean. Love this episode. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, no, that's all good. That's plenty of good nuggets in there. So that was a good one. Lots of great nuggets in there, mate. Um, Really insightful stuff. I'm looking forward to the next time we do this and getting more insightful knowledge from you on what's happening on the front line. Sean, thanks again. Perfect. Thank you. Cool. Awesome. Awesome.